also have not only because remember the last section that we listened to that we read for Jane Eyre not only was it about choosing your own family when your own family is a dud right but the idea of family problems strife in family right remember Mrs. Reed promised her brother that he would take care of Jane and like she super didn't do that right at least not honestly that's for sure I know yes and but I think what's interesting here that should be mentioned is Mr. Rochester's family issues it's mentioned several times like Mrs. Fairfax says that he has a quiet sadness he's depressed about things and part of it is because of his family issues and we hear her say she just talks briefly about it we don't go into detail but we know he had fights with his father and his brother about the estate the Thornfield estate and that it got so bad that that Rochester doesn't didn't talk to his family and so we have this whole idea of familial strife and then because your family's not working, you find a new family. It's a whole, it's a thing. It's a thing. Nice job, Kylie. So we have also um, the idea of romantic love. And it's super, super prevalent in these chapters, right? Because we start to get a little, a little love story happening, right? But it's not a happy love story. We have Jane looking to purge her feelings for Rochester in every way that she can she even says she even says that she sentences herself to a punishment because she's such an idiot she says the word idiot she's such an idiot for thinking that Rochester could have true feelings for her she's so stupid right she calls herself stupid she sentences herself to a punishment of drawing her own picture her own portrait in gray drab colors and then drawing Miss Ingram's portrait from the description that Miss Fairfax gave her in beautiful vibrant colors and she says Jane look at these two pictures together and remember how stupid you are how could you possibly think that when these two pictures are juxtaposed that you could have any sort of leg up on someone who's beautiful and has a higher social class so we have not only romantic love, and Jane says some gorgeous things about love. Let's be honest, it's beautiful. Uh, but also holding back love. Holding back because even though you have those feelings, something about the surrounding society around you makes your love not right. And so this beautiful quote that she says, she says, Most true is it that beauty is in the eye of the gazer. I had not intended to love him. The reader knows reference to the reader the reader knows I had wrought hard to extirpate from my soul the germs of love there detected she's talking about germs of love as a virus she's saying that these feelings she has for him are not beautiful they're germs right uh, and now at the first renewed view of him they spontaneously revived green and strong he made me love him made me right it's not a beautiful love it's a pained love. He made me love him without looking at me. Now, whether or not that's true, that he is not looking at her, is debatable. That lip bite. Remember the lip bite at the end of that chapter? 
I'm just saying, this lip bite. I mean, what are we reading? Are we reading, are we reading like a bodice ripper romance novel or are we reading literature? I mean, come on. But I'm just saying, like, right? The lip bite. Come on, right? <laughs> um, uh, so we have love that's, we usually think of romantic love as something beautiful, but this is causing her pain and torment. She's trying to not feel these feelings. Has anyone have, ever had an unrequited love or a love that you know is not going to work out? Has anyone felt that before? It's rough. It hurts. It's painful. It makes food like lose its taste and stuff. So romantic love, it's all lovely and great when it's reciprocated and when it's appropriate. But when it's not appropriate, it can be super painful, right? Uh, and the idea of marriage, we have, nobody talks about marriage in terms of like, you know, loving someone. Right, we talk about it, Miss Ingram, we know Miss Ingram doesn't have a lot of money. And we know that marrying Mr. Rochester would further her station in, in society, her class level, right? And so we don't know if Miss Ingram even really likes Mr. Rochester. We just know that she sees him as money. She even says she's fine marrying an ugly guy because she doesn't want her husband's beauty to compete with her own beauty. She even says the word foil. She says, I want my husband to be a foil for me. Insert literary device here, right? She says, I want my husband to be a foil because I don't want his thoughts about his own looks to overshadow him worshiping my beauty. We're dealing with a great lady here, someone with some real moral fortitude. You understand what I'm saying? But we also talk about Jane thinks of marrying Rochester and calls herself an idiot for thinking that she could possibly marry him. And she says that Rochester was irresponsible for paying attention to her when he never intended to marry her. So marriage, again, not a happy, happy ever after at this point, right? We're not thinking about it in terms of love and happiness. We're thinking about it in terms of restrictions and transactions, right? Oh, the gothic elements. Oh my goodness, the gothic elements. Lauren, you want to take it away? But I chose to focus on grace because that's kind of a very like prevalent, I don't know if that's the right word, yes. like it's very much uh -huh. a part of these chapters. So the first quote says, when thus alone I not unfrequently heard Grace Poole's laugh, the same peal, the same slow ha-ha, which when first heard had thrilled me. I heard too her eccentric murmur, stranger than her laugh. Next one says, but I tried. We heard this disembodied voice before too, right? Oh, yes. It's developing over time. And also, not for nothing, that ha ha is a what? It's a word that sounds like what it is. It's, it's a onomatopoeia. There you go. Okay, go ahead. Okay, I tried again to sleep, but my heart beat anxiously. My inward tranquility was broken. The clock, far down in the hall, struck two. Just then it seemed my chamber door was touched. Oh shoot. As if fingers had swept the panels and groping away along the dark gallery outside. I said, who is there? Nothing answered. I was chilled with fear. So that one doesn't explicitly say it was Grace. Yeah, but, but the, the fear, the hearing sounds, uh -huh. the like 
somebody must have been dragging their hand against the wall as they were walking toward and from her room door her doorknob, right? Yeah. That's creepy. Kind of spooky. It's ghostly, right? No, thank you. So does that? How do you pronounce? Is it demon? Demonic? Demonic. Demonic. Mm. It's different in the book, though. But the English demoniac. spelling for stuff is yeah. The English spelling for stuff is weird. Okay. Just yeah. this was a demonic laugh, low, suppressed, and deep, uttered as it seemed at the very keyhole of my chamber door. Something gurgled and moaned. Ere long, steps retreated up the gallery towards and the third And gurgled and moaned story. are also. Gurgled and moaned are also. Oh, there you go. There you go. Mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead. No, you're good. Mm -hmm. uh, retreated up the gallery towards the third story staircase. A door had lately been made to shut in that staircase. I heard it open and close, and all was still. Everything's going on in the third story. It's like that West Wing of Beauty and the Beast where they're like, don't go into the West is it the West Wing? Is that yeah, what they call it? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Don't go there. But the gothic elements, you'll notice, right? These elements start to become characters in the story. The gothic elements are not just there for decoration. They're there because they, they start to define the relationships between the people in this story. And Grace Poole, I mean, what a cool character, right? Like, she's mysterious. She's only down there one hour of the day. She goes up into, she's clearly like a ghost in the halls or something. And then she sets Rochester's bed on fire. What, the what, who, what now? And then she wasn't fired? Ghostly, right? So that adds to the mystery of Rochester too. Why would he keep somebody in his employment that's gonna set him on fire? Yeah? Oh, she gets paid lots of money. What's happening with Grace Poole? Is she a ghost? Is she a demon? Is she possessed? It's, it's uh, mentioned several times that she's possessed of the devil. Right? Again, another thing that the historical thinking at the time, that was the first thing that Jane thought, right? That she's clearly just possessed. It's fine. Um, gothic elements, huge deal. The locations, even the fog. Like, remember that fog in the video that we watched? She talks about the fog almost enhancing the light of the moon. And fog in England is like a thing, right? But the fog all at once in, enhances the emotions of the scenes and also deadens everything around people, right? So it's just, even the weather matters and it starts to become characters. And this week with your podcast episode, you'll talk about locations, gothic, you'll hear about lo gothic locations and how they're ghostly and stuff and the walking the halls and hearing disembodied voices and your doorknob is turning and no thank you oh my goodness the byronic hero elements goodness gracious take me away rochester i married a rochester so i understand um i did i i married a byronic hero for 100 percent, and it's been best choice of my life um so we have every single what's funny about that <laughs> i mean honestly I married a Rochester. It happened. Also, Jess from Gilmore Girls is also a Byronic hero. And I, I also compare my husband to Jess a lot. He's a winner, a diamond in the rough. Thank freaking goodness. Whatever. Um, okay, moving on. It's funny that your teacher has like a... And then just move on. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting. How many people find a soulmate? I'm not even that great. Why do I deserve to find a person that's delightful 
after 15 years of marriage. No, but nobody deserves that, but I just got lucky. But then moving on, Byronic Heroes, focus, 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 focus. Now listen, Rochester is the quintessential Byronic hero for many reasons. Not only his looks, but his shady past, right? He's clearly like, you know, at that time having sex before marriage was like, <gasps> he's clearly had sex before marriage, right? Which is, oh, how dare you? And then his looks, he's not, he's not handsome, but he's so compelling that it makes him handsome. Jane even says that, right? He is moody. She calls him changeable. That's long time ago speak for like bipolar, <laughs> right? He's sarcastic. And if you miss the sarcasm in their relationship, you don't understand their relationship, right? He's sarcastic and he uses his sarcasm as a litmus test for the people around him. If they can't match him or they can't understand him, he has no time for them. He even talks about Mrs. Fairfax not understanding his sarcasm and so he, he doesn't talk to her, he doesn't enjoy talking to her. And she even says, before we meet him, she even says, sometimes I don't know if he's serious or kidding. Not in those words, but I paraphrased, obviously. So he, he doesn't have time for people who can't match him intellectually, right? He, he has no need for that. Um, this is all Byronic hero stuff. Also Byronic hero stuff is when they go against the conventions of society. So it would have been crazy for a guy to ask his, his subordinate, somebody he's paying, to come in and converse with him and ask a woman, I mean, can you even believe that he asked a woman what she thought about stuff? What? He does it several times. Several times. He even says, he even says that he has no interest in being, in treating her as a subordinate. All of this stuff is quintessential Byronic hero stuff. And the most important thing about a Byronic hero is they had something in their past that broke them and they haven't repaired themselves. And so we know that he had this Celine thing in his past. We know he had this family thing in his past. They've been wronged and they can't get over the wrong. Right? So, uh, yeah. Quintessential Byronic hero. It's, it, I just, don't even get me started. Okay. Okay. Birds. Not, we've spent the whole first part of the novel, Jane referring to herself as a bird and comparing herself to a bird, being interested in birds, noticing birds, talking about birds, bird imagery, blah, blah, blah. But did you notice, it was real quick, that Rochester compares her to a bird himself. He talks about her being a bird. And so this idea of liberty and having him see her, like he sees her. Because what she sees herself as, he sees as well. Right? And so this bird... This freedom, this idea of being a caged bird, willingly or not willingly, this idea of desiring freedom to fly above everything, to see things. Um, anytime it's a bird, it's it's Jane's stuff. But the moon, you'll notice that the moon appears anything, anytime something significant happens in Jane's life, almost as if the moon is ushering her into certain experiences, certain relationships, certain interactions. It's... The moon is both kind of like a nurturing feature and also, you know, spooky, gothic, like by moonlight stuff. But the moon is spoken, I mean, this is probably a third of the moon references in just those chapters. And back then, the moon was also the main way they really kept track of like seven seasons and time and months. So, like, it was definitely. And also. 
also the moon was a way that people referred. I know this is an uncomfortable topic, but it's a huge thing in Jane Eyre. So just go with it. Um, uh, menstrual cycles. And that's why the moon is discussed as a female all the time, because it, when you have cycles of life, the moon has its own cycles, right? Just like a women's menstrual cycle. And Jane is in the throes of like becoming a woman. And so it's also a female nurturing figure that kind of highlights this, her cyclical nature and brings her into new coming of age interactions. Do you know what I'm saying? Okay. The moon. Uh, self-control. Oh my goodness. I wrote, when I was rereading this, I, all my annotations, I had to write self-control versus free expression like 50 times. And at first we just see Jane trying to have self-control over her wanting to say stuff, right? But then we have Rochester talking about his self-control, like the lip-biting moment. That was a fight between, do I say what I want to say or do I hold myself back? And so now we have Rochester in on this great wrestle between expressing yourself and not and we have Jane desperately trying not to express her feelings for Rochester but we have this really interesting moment when they're having a conversation he asks her he says why didn't you come over and talk to me and she says she's like I didn't say it but I thought it why didn't you come over and talk to me and then it's almost as if she says it's almost as if he read in my face my retort and respected it so now we get this self-control, but they are the antithesis of each other's self-control because it seems as though they can read each other's thoughts. There's even a part where Rochester says, be careful about your eyes because when I look into your eyes, I can see what you're thinking and feeling. So be careful about that. So they can read each other and it circumvents their efforts at self-control. And then we have self-control versus free expression. It would have been so easy for Jane in that conversation with all the rich people when they're totally dogging governesses and being like how terrible governesses are. And it would have been so easy for Jane to have self-control in that moment. But she talks about how she has opinions contrary to the rich people's opinions and she dares to express herself. And they don't enjoy it. They don't care for it. But I venture to say Rochester enjoys it. Social class, class, wealth, and station in society. Goodness gracious, everything is about social class with these people. We talk about Jane desperately trying to remind herself of the social divides that they all have. We talk about the rich people discussing people who are lower in social class than them, talking about them as being disgusting, untrustworthy, corrupting the minds of richer people. When even the stories they tell tell stories of the kids torturing the governesses and not the other way around. So everything is about social class and station, especially even when Mrs. Fairfax talks. She's totally a cog in the machine of like society's expectations. She talks a lot about it. Um, religious duty, oh my goodness. So Jane is somebody who we would think of as a religious person because she's constantly thinking about her duty as a Christian. And there's a moment when Rochester and Jane talk. There's a moment when he says, of all these things in my past, I used to be good like you. But all these things in my past have turned me into a bad person. And he asks Jane point blank if he, 
if redemption is possible. And Jane says all these Christian things, and really it's a lot of what Helen taught her. She talks a lot about repentance, forgiveness, and trying to make yourself a better person, kind of starting where you're at and getting better. And so again, Jane, she went from thinking about religion as like doom and gloom and hellfire and damnation to a source of hope and redemption. And she even communicates that with Rochester. Right? Um, uh, remorse is the poison of life. That's a really interesting, that's part of the conversation that I was talking about between Rochester and Jane. And repentance is said to be its cure. Uh, emotional instability. We got, we introduced Rochester, who is changeable, right? Which just means he's moody, which is a Byronic thing, right? But we've got a lot of crap in his past. Right. Oh, Chloe, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Okay, sorry. Probably all this I should have put a lot more That's fine. That's fine. Okay. So the read that whole quote. <laughs> no, you just talk about it. Okay. So in the first chapters of Jane, you notice that like her mental health isn't very good because she like looks poorly on herself and she always talks about dying. But she has like there's a couple suicidal. Yeah, it's really crazy. I know. I was like, wow. Yeah. And then with these chapters, you kind of see that when Rochester comes into her life and treats her nicely, and Mrs. Fairfax when they come and they treat her like she belongs there, she's starting to become happier as a person. Where like her mental health is going a little more up, but she's still continually calling herself stupid and comparing herself to others. Where that just like kind of alters it. So then. Another quote I did was, oh, when Rochester noticed that she doesn't laugh very much, he was kind of noticing that, like, she's not a very happy person, which would go into mental health. Well, yeah, perfect. And the mental health of Rochester, right? His whole, yeah, well, you know, it's it's normal to focus on the protagonist, right? Um, His mental health is definitely a thing, and it's a barrier to his relationships. He definitely has issues and then we have Jane who was feeling good this relationship with Rochester was was livening her up she even says she like started eating more and like getting more flesh right because she was kind of skinny and scrawny but the second she finds out that Rochester has left and has started dating Miss Ingram that she goes right back into her old ways of self-hatred and depression right and I don't even think it's self-hatred. She still has self-respect. She talks, she says the word self-respect several times. But she's just trying to be real with herself, right? She's just trying to talk herself back from her feelings. It's not great, though. It's still not a great mental state. Um, oh, my goodness. There was so much stuff about plainness and beauty. So much stuff. And it, so much juxtaposition in here. Even plain birds versus beautiful birds. Even the plain Thornfield Hall versus sprucing it up for guests, the beautiful parts of it. We have plainness with Adele's dress versus the beautiful dress that she wants to put on to be part of society. But the most important plainness in her beauty isn't even happening with Jane, it's happening with Rochester, right? This whole quote, the one where she says, most true is it that beauty is in the eye of the gazer. She talks about uh, Rochester being ugly. She says the word ugly, but 
as she starts to understand him and know him, she specifically says that he becomes more appealing in her eyes. But really, I mean, goodness, this is so interesting to me about Jane. She's so preoccupied with beauty that it intimidates her. So she said about Rochester, had he been a handsome, heroic looking young gentleman, I should not have dared to stand thus questioning him. So she's literally saying, if he were handsome, I wouldn't have had the guts to say what I thought. But if, since he's not handsome, I feel like I can stand up and express myself. So something about beauty is so intense for her that she can't even stand up to it, right? Beauty gives social currency. That's exactly what this is about. And so the most interesting thing about the beauty versus plainness is when she asks herself to draw pictures of herself and Blanche and she specifically says I'm going to draw my picture in grays and Blanche's picture in color I mean come on poor thing don't you want to just be like listen (laughs) no no but just the idea of beauty being almost insidious because Celine was beautiful and she totally cuckolded made a cuckold out of Rochester Blanche Ingram is beautiful, but it talks about her being like manipulative and mean and rude. Um, So almost beauty as a weapon in a way. Uh, Yeah. Then we have, do we have, no, Uh, gender roles. Oh my goodness. Now this quote from Jane Eyre is the thing when scholars talk about Jane Eyre, this is the quote they discuss when they talk about feminism. And I know that this sounds like a normal thing to think about, but at the time, this quote was super revolutionary, super revolutionary. The idea that women were good for more than sewing was very revolutionary, but Charlotte Bronte hid it under the guise of a male's pen name. Remember, she's writing this as Courier Bell, a dude. So it's more okay to say this if you're a guy, right? It's more okay to say anything if you're a guy. A rich guy would be helpful too, right? Women are supposed to be very calm generally, but women feel just as men feel. (gasps) That's a revolutionary idea, by the way. They need exercise for their faculties. That means they need mental stimulation, just like men need, right? And a field for their efforts as much as their brothers do. They suffer from too rigid a restraint, too absolute a stagnation, precisely as men would suffer. And it is narrow-minded in their more privileged fellow creatures to say that they ought to confine themselves to making puddings and knitting stockings, to playing the piano and embroidering bags. It is thoughtless to condemn them or laugh at them if they seek to do more or learn more than custom has pronounced necessary for their sex. She's calling men short-sighted for thinking that women can't do more, can't learn more, right? And another thing about this gender roles thing, Blanche talks about how it's women's territory to be beautiful. And if men try to be good looking, then they're entering into women's territory and they shouldn't worry about that. And that all she's looking for is a foil to her beauty. She doesn't need someone beautiful. She needs someone rich is basically what she's saying. Because Mrs. Ingram is beautiful and relatively poor, and Mr. Rochester is ugly and rich. She needs a foil or an opposite, right? Uh, Let us see. Strong, nurturing women 
Rachel, you want to take it away? It says something with Jane, but I didn't find something about Jane in there, so I just added that I love box it. just because. Um, so I think the main one that I found was Mrs. Fairfax, who's the house. Oh, sorry. sorry. I'm recording. Oh, okay. Um, who is the housekeeper? And on page 179, it says the quote: um, "Impossible now to remain longer by myself. I must go to Mrs. Fairfax." And that's when she um, sends something like outside her door, and she was scared. And I think that kind of reminded me of like in the middle of the night when you're like have a nightmare or something, you just go to your mom, not just because like they can really do anything but because you find comfort for it and um, another one was on page 140 when she talks about how Mrs. Fairfax is kind of like uh, like a mother role to her like kind of how she looks to Adele like as a mother figure for her and then another one I found was the dowager um, as like a strong woman it kind of reminded me not of, nurturing for sure yeah but strong for sure yeah right it just reminded me of like an evil stepmom kind of vibes. Because well, she said she reminded her of Mrs. Reed, who yeah. was an evil stepmom, right? Like for reals. Yeah. Because <laughs> yes. then it was like I feel like she's just super proud of like her daughters and like their beauty and that she kind of just wants the best for them. Um, another small one that I found was Sophie, who was Adele's French nurse. I think just because of that, it gives her like a sense of like uh, like motherly motherly nurturing. And then the ones I found for Jane is that she was nurturing and strong, like how she looked to Adele as like a mother figure, like she was a mother figure to Adele. And then um, she was strong, and in the quote it says, you wrap out a round rejoinder, which if not blunt is at least um, brusque, which was what Rochester saw Jane as. Yeah, I mean, but again, the idea of having strong women in your story that are nuanced and, you know, individuals was revolutionary, <laughs> right? Revolutionary. Um, it's so sad that nobody signed up for the human soul because there's so much talk about the soul. I'll talk about that in a second. I made my own slide for it. Um, imprisonment, we have just the idea of Lowood School as being a constraint that still clings to her. Remember, Rochester says, Lowood still clings to you. And then uh, talking about imprisonment in terms of before she met Rochester, she still felt imprisoned by Thornfield Hall. And even though she was still in the same place, the atmosphere of that place changed with the entrance of Mr. Rochester. So really, imprisonment isn't so much about the place, it's about the people there. Remember how Lowood felt like a prison until she came, became friends with Helen and Mrs. Temple. So uh, we'll get into some more imprisonment stuff later. But, and I'm so sad that nobody signed up for fire because fire is, I don't know, a super important part of this chapter. But really, it, when Jane talks about Rochester, she uses the word fire like 30 times. It's easy to miss. But she talks about fire, and really, anytime you see fire, it's a sign of heightened emotions, deep and intense emotions. And the person who started the fire is also dealing with intense emotions. So Jane has intense emotions towards Rochester and the person who started the fire has intense emotions as well. So just remember thinking anytime you see fire, we've got passion of some kind, right? Uh, we have nourishment. We talk about Jane bringing food for Adele. 
the idea of being nourished and the idea that Jane wasn't eating much before Rochester came and then he came and she started to gain weight and like gain flesh, she says. Um, just the idea that the food, she, remember she when the rich people were eating, they, they ate like really, really rich stuff and the whole house was you know, kind of preoccupied with feeding the rich people. And so Jane, they forgot about Jane's dinner. So Jane went down and got like cold chicken and like leftovers basically. So there are the juxtaposition of like nice food for the rich people and leftovers for the poor people or the orphans, right? Uh, dreams and nightmares. There's a interesting dream and nightmare references. Um, Again, a lot of times in dreams, it reveals the character's fears and passions. And she forgot to mention the pictures, just the drawings of Jane and Miss Ingram are probably the most introspective parts of the whole novel. Her forcing herself to look at these two things juxtaposed to really truly remember how far apart she is from Miss Ingram. And creating not only a juxtaposition, which is literary device, but a foil. Everything that Jane is, Miss Ingram isn't, and vice versa. Uh, are you ready? Okay. Uh, so, for narration, I was looking through, and first of all, it's in first person. Uh, the story is told by Jane, so in this case, that means the whole story is told directly from Jane, and by doing that, uh, you have this natural-like change in tone and mood and feeling, uh, depending on what the story is focusing on because it's all through her perspective and in that way it makes her a biased narrator of her own story because when she talks about one person it's horribly angry and you only see the bad sides of them even if there could have been some good sides and it was hard because I was like wait but you want to trust Jane because you like her but then you're like well she could be telling us like a different side of the story than someone else would but in that way, uh, uh, the narration of the story can be used as the perspective that the writer wants us to see it from. I think it means a lot that we're seeing it from a woman's point of view. Written uh, by a man. Written by a man. So it would have, he would have been seen as progressive instead of just another, I don't know, like freedom caller that wanted things to change in total, but uh, there were two quotes that I found, but honestly anything could be used as a quote to kind of prove this, it all ties in somewhere, but uh, when thus alone I not unfrequently heard Grace Poole's laugh, the same peel, the same low, slow, haha, which when first heard had shrilled me, I heard it too, her eccentric murmurs, stranger than her laugh, and it was talked about in another one, but that one just like showed Jane's emotion towards things so much and like the way she was hearing things when she said like that slow haha you could tell it was impersonal incorrect grammar but it was about what she was hearing yeah you guys have a good week there's so much more to talk about we'll do it next week uh and make sure there's more time for it I'm sorry that there wasn't enough time I have cool stuff to say about it is all I'm saying very cool stuff to say have a good day will you you're going to be great. I know it. I know it. That's good. They're going to let your watcher in and let it help you. Right? Mm-hmm.
Prioritize those slides, my friends. Have a good day. Thank you. Have a good day. See ya. So for literary devices, we have just so much imagery, a lot of bird imagery, a lot of description of the surroundings. Uh, we also have lots and lots and lots and lots of onomatopoeias. There's this uh, children's book, and it's Jane Eyre, the children's book, and all it does is talk about all of the use of onomatopoeias. And those onomatopoeias just contribute to the overall feeling and atmosphere of the piece, especially the gothic stuff. There's a lot of like mysterious ha-has, and then when she's outside, there's just all of these really vivid sounding words that really help paint a picture of that atmosphere. We also have allusions to Mahomet, Diana, Job from the Bible, Macbeth, Balua, just lots and lots and lots of outside allusions. Um, personification when she said, a polyard window willow before me, rising up still and straight to meet the moonbeams. So we're personifying that willow. And then a metaphor where she said, I was tossed on a buoyant but unquiet sea. And then we have another simile. He went on as a statue would. That is, he never spoke nor moved. And then we have an extended metaphor when she talks about the green snake of jealousy. And she kind of weaves that metaphor into several lines of her thoughts. And then the metaphor of when she's kind of reprimanding herself for having feelings for Rochester. She talks about her being arraigned at her own bar. So she's talking about being judge and jury of her own self. And then she also talks about sentencing herself. Um, and her sentence was to draw those two pictures and highlight the differences between her and Miss Ingram and never forget. So just that extended metaphor of a court of her own mind is sad. But then we talk about in Jane Eyre, her efforts to kind of put into words what a soulmate is and how nobody can really define it but it is what it is but her her sister Emily Bronte in Wuthering Heights also attempts to do the same thing so Emily Bronte says um, he shall never know I love him and that not because he's handsome Nelly but because he's more myself than I am whatever our souls are made of his and mine are the same and so just this idea of trying to put into words what it means when two people go together like puzzle pieces. And it's hard to put into words what that is, but just the idea of soulmates. And then Charlotte Bronte tries to define it when she says, He is not to them what he is to me, I thought. He is not of their kind. I believe he is of mine. I am sure he is. I feel akin to him. I understand the language of his countenance and movements. Though rank and wealth sever us widely, I have something in my brain and heart, in my blood and nerves, that assimilates me mentally to him. 
Every good, true, virtuous feeling I have gathers impulsively round him. For when I say that I am of his kind, I do not mean that I have his force to influence and his spell to attract. I mean only that I have certain tastes and feelings in common with him. I must then repeat continually that we are forever sundered, and yet, while I breathe and think, I must love him. So trying to put into words the things that humans have a hard time putting into words. And lastly, I want to talk about, I just find it extremely, extremely important to talk about the way that Charlotte Bronte refers to the reader throughout the novel. And I've read a a couple doctoral theses on this idea of referring to the reader and the idea that a woman would speak directly to the reader and kind of break, break the conventions of a regular novel is important. And she is looking not just to tell a story, she's looking to develop a relationship with the reader. And in that relationship, she's trying to help people understand her style of feminism and not the kind of feminism that's hateful or trying to oppress men, but just the idea of feminism that like, it's okay for women to like think and feel and learn and express themselves and break conventions and the idea that Charlotte Bronte is trying to bring the reader in and help them understand her point of view on this because it was a revolutionary point of view at the time and the idea Charlotte Bronte said she said conventionality is not morality Self-righteousness is not religion. To attack the first is not to assail the last. These things and deeds are diametrically opposed. They are as distinct as vice is from virtue. Men too often confound them. So what she's trying to say is, just because I'm breaking convention and tradition in the way I'm writing, it doesn't mean that my book isn't moral. It just means that there's more to be found in the idea of breaking convention. And she really does break convention. She talks to the reader all the time. And as she grows older and more confident in herself, her references to the reader happen more often. And she tries to speak directly to you. It's as if Charlotte Bronte is trying to talk directly to you, not some reader, but you, literally you, and reaching out to you and asking you to understand her point of view, not just from a narrator's point of view, not just in terms of a story, but understand her as a human and what she needs as a human and she she just talks about the reader and she even characterizes her ideal reader she says um, in chapter 12 she says sometimes I saw her oh romantic reader forgive me for telling the plain truth burying a pot of porter her appearance was always acted as a damper to the curiosity raised by her oral oddities and it's just so funny she's she understands that the reader might think that she's being judgmental of Grace Poole. So she asks the reader to forgive her for being kind of judgmental. So she she really does want the reader to understand her and not mischaracterize her thoughts. And also understand that she's a flawed person and she understands that. But she her story is still worthwhile to tell. So that's really just a little discussion of chapters 12 through 17 of Jane Eyre. I hope it's helpful for you and uh, we'll talk more about it next week. Hey, just a quick break in this episode. 
to remind you that podcasts are a really powerful way to communicate and share your ideas, especially for students. Podcasts are also a great way to suggest an alternate means of showing what you know for your teachers. So consider starting your own podcast today. Um, the app that I'm using for this podcast is called Anchor. It's free and really, really easy to use. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Good luck and happy recording. Music